You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, folks, I've got a hell of a guest for you tonight. We've got Tim Napier on the show. Tim, how's it going? It goes as it goes, mind of its own, you know. I, I hear you. So, folks, just right off the bat, Tim is from New Jersey, so don't hold that against him. Uh, we'll probably get into some Jersey bashing later, but I, I got to say, in the midst of, you know, the corona apocalypse, the current pandemic sweeping the country right now, I, I know that a lot of you, like myself, have probably been binging an unhealthy amount of films, especially stuff you probably haven't seen in a while. And uh, two films that I, I recently watched back to back, and it's probably the reason why I really wanted to have Tim on to talk about this, are um, National Treasure and National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. Not because Tim is like Nick Cage. He, he Actually, if Tim, if you were any version of Nick Cage, I think you would be Nick Cage from The Rock with uh sean connery you remember that one yeah welcome Uh, to the rock that one it's it's been a while but anyway tim we met um about a year ago we met uh through your wife my good friend uh kim coulter and i gotta say she told me to prepare for you when i first met you but we were on a car ride for about an hour and a half. And honestly, in, in the past year, I still like pick moments from that conversation and things that we've been able to throw back at each other since. And I, I got to say, I don't, I don't know if the term woke is it. Probably you're one of the most based people I've ever met. But I got to ask, Tim, how, how did Tim become Tim? Uh, well, it started at a really irregular childhood, I guess you could say. My dad was a, a question everything kind of guy. He wanted to be a history teacher, and then I came around, so he became an attorney. And uh, before he ended up passing, he just passed this last year. He had actually won four uh, civil rights lawsuits against the state of New Jersey. Uh, he, he was a big advocate for actually making your punches stick. <laughs> Holy and, shit! What like what 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 were some of the cases? Oh, uh, one was Leonard v. Blackburn. Uh, if you don't have the money to pay child support, they can no longer hold you in jail indefinitely if you don't have the money. And that, was do- a, that was a thing? There were people that didn't have shoes, yeah. How do you pay child support if you're in jail? That's a wonderful question. Like, why do they suspend your license, which is a consequence of magnitude? You now have to pay $100 to the state to get your license back if you miss a child support payment. So if you don't have the money, now you owe money and you can't drive. That's, that's like debtor's prison, in like old England when basically if you couldn't pay a debt, they just put you in jail for like a God awful amount of time. And the whole idea was you'll pay your debt that way. But it's like, how, how can, how can anyone get any type of financial restitution if you're in jail? It's a strange sort of, uh, it's a strange sort of slavery because it's like, you have to, you have to willfully decide to make the mistakes that enable you to be locked into that system. So they make making those mistakes really easy. Holy (laughs) shit what what were some what were the others you said four right oh yeah uh, they they all went along with the basic the same basic principles of like um preventing child alienation for divorces and trying to make sure that the state doesn't overtax or overburden people that can't pay like he uh, he was one of the first people to do divorce kits you can just send in 99 dollars and he'll, he'll sign it if it's uncontested and boom done huh like, Dude, New Jersey has the weirdest fucking laws. Like, I, w- I went to New Jersey with my father 
uh, about a year ago, we were going to Red Bank to go visit um, uh, Kevin Smith's Secret Stash, his comic book store from Comic Book Men on AMC. I and I did, huh? It's in Redwood, I think? Yeah, it's in uh, Red Bank. Red Bank. Red Bank. It, it, it's a nice little place, you know, definitely gives off the nicer side of Jersey that the stereotypes often don't show. But I, I just remember pulling over and somebody ran over to our car and we thought they were going to rob us, but they were pumping our gas. And that was one of the strangest things I'd ever encountered. And I remembered that that's an actual thing. Like there's an actual law that, that will fine you and possibly arrest you if you refuse to have these gas station attendants pump your own gas and that that freaks me the hell out well and that's that's a side effect of having such a dense population and so many people incarcerated there's low skill there's a need for low skilled labor so literally activating a gas pump is some people's career that's what they do until they die okay like there's low skill like when i think of low skill i think of you know you're gonna be like a fry cook or a cashier that's just like that's a that's like breathing or wiping your own ass it's effectively go get me a glass of milk from the fridge. Okay, thanks. Here's a dollar. Put it in the register next. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing that bothers me more. Like you have to tip them. Uh, you don't have to, but it's people do it. Yeah. That bastard lied. Oh yeah. No, you were lied to. You don't have to tip a gas station. Then. Oh, so I was essentially robbed at that point. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, New Jersey's always kind of freaked me out. Like I, I studied, uh, I did like a state and local politics class in college and we all had to take a different state's constitution and compare it to the federal constitution. And like, there's no right to bear arms there. I think the longest part of the New Jersey constitution has to deal with uh, gambling because New Jersey was actually one of the later states to actually legalize gambling, despite being a, you know, rather metropolitan East coast state. So that kind of freaks me out. And then there was the clause somewhere that talked about, you know, basically saying that you, you would have to have an act of like the state government, like the state legislature would actually have to repeal a current law in order to allow people to actually pump their own gas. And it's just like, you don't, you don't think that's, that's still happening in like the year 2020, but that's like still a thing and nobody questions it. It gets worse. In New Jersey, you can no longer buy a pellet gun. If, if you order an airsoft gun to your house, cops will come. Like you can't own it or you can't buy it? You can't, you can't own it. So if you, if you acquire it somewhere else and bring it into New Jersey and you get pulled over, it could become a problem potentially. It's a toy. It, not, it depends how fast the projectile moves. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So if I can throw a 90-mile-an-hour baseball or an 85-mile-an-hour baseball, and I, I know that if I hit someone in the head with that, it's over. That's not a problem. But if I have a, a plastic BB gun, that's, that's an end-all deal. I mean, you could say the same thing for, like, you know, compact bow and arrows. Yeah. Like, those things will do far. It, it, it's so funny what we classify as, like, what's actually dangerous, and then we actually allow more dangerous things in, like, yeah. our everyday lives. It, it's all it, – it's less about – you know, actually protecting people. And it's more about like the, secu- the, the security theater that goes into it. A lot of it's security theater in New Jersey. Well, New Jersey, it's very, very corrupt. And one of the bigger problems I see is they get a lot of corruption coming from Philly and, and the ports and then the port system through New York as well. So when, when New Jersey was built, like Trenton was kind of decent because it was a hub, you know, and everyone was moving through it. When that stopped happening and there just became a lot more hungry mouths, they started begging the state for like TPH, Trenton Psych Hospital. It's, it's horrible. The conditions there are ridiculous, but they get so much money every year because tr- they're doing that like we're trying to aid and look, how di- look at how terrible these communities are. If you give us more money, we can try to improve it. And in fact, it just turns into a bigger 
feeder of those same problems. It's like uh, they use a lot of the California penal code in New Jersey for some reason. And like if you go on your LexisNexis to look up charges from New Jersey, there's a lot of CAs. And that, that's really interesting and unnecessary because it's basically just creating a, a factory of locking people up and letting them back out. <laughs> like, oh, that's crazy. Do, do they have private prisons in New Jersey or are they public? Oh, they have a lot of private prisons. The private prison, the private prison industry is married to the state prison industry because if you go to state prison, you're going to be offered a program called a halfway back program. It's almost guaranteed to be offered it. And that means you're going to go to a company owned by the, by Geo, one of the major uh, private prison corps. Oh, they, they own a ton in like Nevada and California. Yeah, they're big in New Jersey as well. And what Geo does is they buy up places that are failing, like the Bo Robinson Rehab, Rehab Center, and they lower all the standards, hire a bunch of people that aren't American so they can save money. And then you are, uh, they get saddled with sexual assault charges constantly from these people, and they just bury it under the rug because the people they're dealing with are all inmates and drug addicts on their own. And they know they're only a week or two from getting back on the street, so they're not going to make noise. <laughs> and it just, it turns into this insane system where you're ordering the same kind of like commissary you would get in prison at five or six times the price. And the meals they're giving you are like medically and uh, they're, they're, they're geared towards like a cognitive behavioral therapy. So you're supposed to have like a modeled diet that's supposed to be good for you, but really it's calorie counting and control. So they restrict your foods. So you're always hungry and agitated. And then in one of these therapeutic environments, they can see, is he going to freak out? If he backmouths a staff member, we can send him back to prison, get more money because we had to send someone back and get someone else back and stress out the next batch. And they so, lock in. Yeah. So wait, like even in the commissary, like they're, they're putting like a, a premium on things like how, like a pack, like a pack of cigarettes. Well, a pack of cigarettes in New Jersey and New York is already expensive. You can't, you can't smoke in prisons in Jersey. You can't smoke. Nope. Not anymore. What yeah. else is there to do? Uh, stab each other, play chess. Okay. We're, we're getting ahead. I want to, I want to kind of jump into this. Cause I think now we've really kind of set, set the stage for things. Tim, you've got one of the most remarkably insane stories I've, I've ever heard of and, and through it, like it's, it, it's, I, I remember sitting in the car as we were talking about this, your experience, like it's both horrifying, but in a lot of ways, you know, it, it shows a remarkable amount of bravery in terms of what one person can handle. You, you spent how many years in prison? Three years, five months, 26 days in prison. And I did nine months county time. How, how old were you? When I first went in, I was 18. And I was let out after doing about six months of a county bid. And I was given a whole bunch of charges. I mean, I should just get into what I did. <laughs> okay, we, we got to jump into it because this is, this is what's crazy. Oh, this is why I brought up national treasures. See, folks, everything goes into each other. Tim, explain to people what happened. So when I was 18, uh, me and some friends, we'd gotten into Four Loco, uh, the original, and it was first on the market. And I don't know if you'd had any of that before they took it off the market. But I, I, had, I had one Four Loco, like my first year in the Army. I just remember, like, my heart was pumping, and I, I heard, like, Norwegian black metal in the background, and <laughs> I stopped. I was like, I, I'm done. <laughs> And this is coming from someone that used to drink a, a, a monster Java like every day. Yeah. So I don't know why that was too much for me. Uh, at the time, I was a punk rocker all through high school. I did the Mohawk and, the, you know, anarchy all the time. I didn't really have any values. I just was angry. So that seemed to be a group of people that were very willing to accept angry people. So I, uh, me and my knucklehead friends, we got smashed on Full Loco. And I blacked out almost immediately. And it seemed like a great idea to go into the woods. And I remember some parts of going through the park. But then we approached uh, the Washington Crossing State Park Museum. And a tree had come down and taken the first doors down. 
right? Because there was during, this was during Hurricane Irene, I should clarify. In oh, wait, wait, that was 2011. That was right before Sandy. Yeah, it was right before. Oh, I remember people talking about that because I, I remember on the news, they were like a lot of the areas that were damaged by a previous hurricane were only made worse by Sandy because in the year between it, the state did like nothing. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd been gone, we'd gone entirely stir crazy. We'd had no power for 11 days because of like uh, Irene. And it was ridiculous because we lived right next to Hopewell Township and this area was fine. Like all the roads were open, all the businesses were up. We didn't, hadn't had power for like going on two weeks. We were a little out of it. So one night we decided... Uh, Throwing caution to the wind, you know, we go three sheets in and we wander, <laughs> wander through the state park with no lights on. There's no, it's, everything's dead, nothing to do. And uh, we ended up uh, going into the museum itself and helping ourselves more or less. I woke up the next morning and I wish I could, I wish I had a, co- a cognitive chain of events because I'm sure it'd be great memories. But I do remember waking up in a full continental uniform. I had muskets all over the place. I had flintlock pistols shoved in my, my belt that went this way and my belt that went this way. I was like, oh, okay, this is a problem. My roommate's over there, like, freaking out. Like, yeah, yeah, now you're, now you're cognizant enough to fucking realize what's going on, man. The first, thing, the first thing going through my mind would have been, like, how did I carry all of this? Did you carry all of that? We, we carried it. We wrapped them up in, uh, there were old flags, not like the, the New Jersey state flag and some other... It wasn't. It wasn't American or, or pre-colonial, but we. I think it was like the, uh, the flag for the Swan Society who owned the museum. So and, you, uh, use the, you use the exhibits to carry the other exhibits. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And uh, you know, I kind of just uh, pretended it didn't happen and went about <laughs> living my punky life. I played a show two or three days later at someone's property, and uh, cops just swarmed during the party. During the party, yes. Oh, that's crazy. I was thanked wholeheartedly for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's something no one's ever going to forget, but like going back a few steps, like you you had all the muskets, you had all, you had the uniform. I've seen those uniforms. Those are some small people. You're about my height. Yeah. At the time I was about a buck 50. I was wrestling in high school. So, but I was a little short on me, but it it fit me. My gosh. where, Where were your other clothes? Did you leave your other clothes behind? No, I was wearing them underneath for the most part. Uh, like, I hadn't put on the pants properly because I'd torn my leg through them when I tried to put them on. So they were left behind. But where, yeah. where did you store everything? Like, how do you store all of that? It wasn't really stored. Like I said, when we woke up, it was just around the room. So I literally put everything into a small, like, semi-walk-in closet. Like, it was one of those closets that slanted, like, the roof. I put everything into ah. there and closed the door, pretended it didn't happen, and was like, all right, well, we just lay low and we'll see... We'll see what happens. We'll see if we, we'll see if they know who did this. <laughs> and uh, a few days later, they were just questioning people, just shaking down kids around the neighborhood. And they ended up going to someone who, who knew something about it from one of the kids I'd gone with. I was the only one who was 18. So when they ended up. Oh, so everyone else is getting a slap on the wrist. <laughs> well, when they found out everyone else had to get a slap on the wrist, especially because they were going after these kids whose parents aren't favorable to answering questions from badges and ties. I mean, this is Titusville, Titusville, New Jersey. So they're coming around and can I talk to your son? He's like, no. It's like, yeah, I need to. He's like, yeah, but no, because he's not even home. And like Nick walked by in the background and the cop was like, all right. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, uh, th- I mean, to their credit, uh, they rolled over about as quickly as you could expect a 17 year old to do when you got state police, FBI. And oh, so fast. There's no loyalty. Yeah. And then when it came Gosh. to me, I, you know, anything they said that they already had record that I had done, I just said, okay, yeah, I did that. Anything they couldn't, they didn't have record I had done. I said, prove it or I didn't do it. And we rolled from there. Yeah. Like why make things worse? Excuse me if I'm wrong. Weren't, weren't one of the items like 
Alexander Hamilton's dueling pistols or something like that? Right, yeah, the Swan Foundation had had a rotary display going across the country, and in it was uh, Alexander Hamilton's dueling pistols and some Aaron Burr artifacts, as well as some tomahawks and stuff. And, and, for, and for folks that don't know, one, like our third vice president shot the, sec- the former Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. You all know it from the musical, but that shit like, actually happened. And yep, like and Alexander Hamilton's pistol jammed or misfired. It just it, there was a second delay in the spark and burn nailed him. I wish politicians would do that more often. Just as a side note, like I feel like we would be a much more civil society if we just brought back like you know maybe not not like non fatal dueling, but you know something the equivalent of like an MMA match. And if they want to opt for like spears or something from like Wrath of Khan, like they should have the option yeah. of doing that. Klingon honor, Klingon honor blades. I feel you. Yeah, like they we, like we wouldn't have like ninety year old curmudgeon senators from like Kentucky. I think the, one of the big problems is one thing you've got no there's no term limits. So the ideologies that should have transformed when the population memetically was programmed over a twenty year block, they didn't get transformed. They were living the same pattern, completely disconnected. And when everyone else is getting handled and groomed and carved into acting and thinking a different way, other guys that, like the people that are ironically in control of our country for the most part. The ones who don't need to be elected, they're not faces. They actually run shit. <laughs> like, they, they don't have, they have such a disconnect to how we think that when they look at it, they're like, yeah, I don't even know. Those, those I, they're not even human. <laughs> they're not even I, I, I find myself, like, less mad at the politicians, and I've been growing increasingly more mad at, like, the electorate that keeps sending them back. Like, Nancy Pelosi, I just realized that Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, I found this out the other day, like, they were part of several committees that had to review the ATF's actions during the Waco raid. And it's like, that was before I was even born. And it's like, wait a second. They weren't like the junior senator from New York or the junior congresswoman. Like they had been there for at least 10 years already. To be, yeah, to be frank, that's part of why Trump's, Trump's election was such a hurrah for so many people. Because since before, you're right, since before our birth, a lot of these people have been playing games. And this is the first time they're getting called out in a horrific way. And we're watching them sweat and scramble and foam at the mouth. And it's like, yeah, well, it, it's become a circus, but it was going to come to a head at some point. Like you, it's like a. I don't know if you've read any of the Game of Thrones books, but I've only seen the shows. I, I had a lot of time at one point, so I read them all. Huh. <laughs> and, uh, and okay, so I, yeah, so so going back because I'm I'm totally gonna get lost track on this one. Like, ha, were were the pistols behind like glass or something? Yeah, the, well, they were all behind. Pa, pa, I remember parts of this because I remember I was trying. I grabbed the. the so, let's, so let's just talk about the pistols on this one. Right, yeah. The, yeah. The, I remember I remember bits and pieces of the displays themselves. I remember that one was in a center display in the middle of the room, and it had this thick glass box around it, and it had one of those little tiny keyholes like for a jewelry box. Yeah. And for a counter display, I don't know if you've ever worked in a job that has a display counter yeah. in the back. Yeah. So it had like one of those little tiny... The little latch things that come off. Yeah. yeah. And I just I got my fingers under the corner and started like pulling the door, and it was plexiglass, so it was making the wobble wobbles, but it like wouldn't actually open. And then... I don't remember if it was uh, myself or someone that had accompanied me. We just uh, went right through it, right through the front of the glass. God. When, when did you find out what those were? Like, did you know, like, the next I, day? I knew, I knew immediately that I'd fucked up. I knew immediately <laughs> that I had, uh, I, had, I, had, I had in my hand something that was priceless artifacts of national treasure. Like, that's, I realized that. And there was no way I can go back and return it and put it in a big box with a bow. So, like, I just kind of played it low. And I didn't even hear anything about the act of investigation. I didn't know what was going on until the pincers closed, so to speak. And at that point, 
they hit me with like 13 federal gun charges, one charge for each inactive firearm, not counting them as antiques, which are no longer firearms. They weren't charging those as guns. Those were freaking muskets. <laughs> and then they hit me with, uh, they hit me with everything they could. It's spaghetti. In total, I think it was 21 charges. It's New Jersey. Yep. And after a while, it boiled down to two or three and then, and then two and then one. And then it ended up turning into felony criminal mischief or fourth degree burglary, which is I trespassed with the intention to commit a crime. And it's like, okay, well, trespassing in itself is committing a crime. So that's a, you're just trying to find a way to be like, you shouldn't have done what you They're did. They're trying to split hairs of that one. Right. But then they extended the, the magnitude on the other side. I had to pay a ridiculous amount of money. I only got out from under that, like, when I was 26. So, uh, out of the money I owed. But beyond that, uh, I was on probation. And at the time, I, was, I wasn't, like, homeless, but I didn't live at home. I'd left my dad's house, and I was living with friends and... Uh, they didn't have an, an address permanent on me. So they kept sending it to like my father's address or to an address I hadn't lived at. And I would tell them I'd change my address. Like I'm not living there. My probation officer had a stack, you know, that big on his desk. So I kept getting hit with failures to appear and getting locked back up for two or three days and then released again after I saw the judge. And after the third one, they were like, it was some new, new judge. And she was like, you know what? Like I'm seeing a lot of the same violations. And I was like, yeah, before I got the chance to explain, yeah. Cause they keep sending it to addresses. I don't live at, stop doing that. I won't be dragged in here anymore. <laughs> like, that's uh, I got a, that was it. They slammed down the wire. So they're 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 tossing all these felonies at you and stuff. For all, for all, everyone that was like seventeen. Like when, once you start going into like the felony range, is there a point where they stop charging you as a minor and they start charging you as an adult? Well, did did uh, any of them get hit with that, or were they just like you know slap on the wrist, go to juvie, go home? Because I was willing to take charges and I didn't you know I didn't hire a big attorney or anything, they pretty much let the miners go. They finally had someone that they could blame, and the state itself was getting a lot of flack because the FBI had to get involved, which means that they were arresting people for like speeding and pot possession during a, a national emergency, the hurricane, and meanwhile, the museum was getting robbed, so they were getting a lot of pressure, and they needed someone to blame it on this is you know what I mean that's going to shatter your career for a lot of people who are getting yelled at <laughs> and like you were like their criminal Jesus at that point. <laughs> It was, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful little experience. What? Whenever I tell yeah. anybody about it, like even, even guards, I would constantly get asked, like, what, what did you do? <laughs> like, uh. like, like we, we've talked about this and like, you know, while, while we do laugh at it, like you, you do, you, you came to terms with it a long time ago. What you did was criminal, but just the way that they kept stacking it on you, I would have started narking on some of my friends. It would have been like, well, Jimmy's a Coke dealer and that guy had got hit with grand theft auto. Like I would have started taking people down with me. Did you ever have that idea? I wasn't raised that way. I couldn't like the big thing that I realized is that I was, I had depression problems when I was younger. I didn't think I had a lot of promise. I didn't think that I, so I was like, you know what, if i if someone's going down, I'm not going to take away from these kids that have nuclear families and do have chances. Like, all right, I'll, I did it. You got me. You're already telling me I did it. Just, I don't know why other names are on this piece of paper. Basically. What, uh, yeah. What, what came after that? Whenever, like I, I, I have had the, uh, but <laughs> I don't think I've actually told anyone these stories. I, I was chased by the cops when I was 18 because I was, uh, I was just out of basic. I was going to uh, military school out in Alabama 
And after we finished like our, you know, beat the shit, haze the cadets stage, and we were actually like members of the Corps of Cadets, like we actually got to like leave on the weekends and stuff. And I remember me and a few of my buddies, we looked like skinheads because they, you know, we had, we were bald at the time. So we were, yeah. So like, we looked like a bunch of skinheads. If they looked at me, they would have been like, that guy's not Aryan. But I I just remember we kept trying, we, we drove up to Tuscaloosa to the University of Alabama and we wanted to get to some parties. But the thing about, you know, real life, I didn't realize was that a lot of frats because of lawsuits and stuff. And this is before like, you know, the whole rape campus hysteria started. I remember it really started at the University of Virginia in 2014 with the Rolling Stones and that uh, that so-called reporter made up the entire story. But right before that happened in like 2013, I didn't realize that in order to get into most of these frat parties, you actually need to be either part of the frats or you had to be on a pre-approved list. So we're not on any of these fucking lists. Like I don't think anyone from there was even from the South, except me. I was from Virginia, if Northern Virginia counts. But I remember at one point we got so desperate to get in and drink. What we wanted to do was we tried hopping the fence. So we hopped the fence in, a bunch of these freaking kids start yelling at us. Next thing you know, we jump out and the cops are waiting there for us. And I, I, I mean, I was, I was a pretty good runner at the time. I don't remember running as fast as that in my entire life, but that was <laughs> yeah. that. So I, I know what it's like to a degree to think, Oh shit. Like there they are. What, what goes in your mind once they've caught you and you know, you can't run at that point. Uh, well, <sighs> This is where it might be. I don't know. You've got libertarian listeners, so I guess it'll hit both sides of the fence. Like, uh, cops are usually dicks, unfortunately. It's the uniform. The uniform, not the guy. But, and yeah, I have to remember that even to this day, because there were moments when I was locked up where you get abused at the hands of people in the system. Like, prison guards can do whatever they want. They let their, their dogs piss on your bed when they're doing room searches. Like, they do, and they have commands for this shit. They know what they're doing. They know how to psychologically fuck with you because they can't. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And you can blame him for it, but Stanford Prison Experiment shows you that you can't blame him for it. So, like, either or, cops are fucked up. And once they had me and they knew they had me, they, you know, they were polite about it, to say the least. Like, what, I, had what? The and, I had the mohawk and everything else, and uh, I got handcuffed, hands on my back and the ankle chains, too, because they, they kept yelling, stop resisting while they were tackling me. And then they carried me out with my ankle chains and my mohawk and put me in the backseat of the car. That sucked. You, you see, you bring that up. Like one of my favorite things to do right now is go on YouTube and watch those uh, Chris Hansen to catch a predator things. And I always love it when like the guys walk into the garage and next, you know, the cops run out. So like for a while, and I remember watching this before I really began to know how the criminal justice system works for a while. I used to think, yeah, tase them. But then, you know, like years later, I meet people like you and I'm, I meet Andrew Meyer. For those, for those of you that don't know Andrew Meyer, he's the don't tase me bro guy. He was the first internet meme. And I remember I was in like fifth grade when that happened and watching it. I just thought it was funny. I'm like, he's resisting. Then you really learn what happened to Andrew and you hear that. I mean, he, he wasn't resisting. The cops were trying to really mess with him. That's why they tased him. And then they threw him in a jail cell. The guy had like asthma or something like that. Couldn't get his inhaler or something. So he he could have died overnight. But like, I, I'm a lot more skeptical of cops, especially once they immediately are like, okay, escalation of force now. Let's go straight to the taser or something else. It's it's horrifying. And often, you know, especially if someone has done something wrong, what I hate about our current penal system is that once you're behind bars, it's like they essentially strip you of your humanity. You never have an alibi. You're constantly lying. That justifies so much abuse that goes on in our prison system. 
Yeah, uh, it's a it's a you know slippery slope's a fun term to use, but the reason the reason recidivism rates so high is for the most part you have to look at the people getting arrested because it's not high among everybody, but it's high among people who don't go in feeling very good about themselves and they already feel separate. They already feel like less than or apart from society. And then as soon as they go in, you are now looking at a microcosm for your entire universe. There's an, an abusive person in power. There are people around you that are supposed to be your peers, but they look at you with suspicion because everyone regards everyone's suspicion. And there's intense violence over tension that no one can control because to admit to feeling scared is to make yourself vulnerable. So like the entire thing is a condensed can of fucked up soup. <laughs> and it, uh, like, I was really angry for uh, most of my incarceration. I, I completely let it take over because to one, for one, in one regard, you can't really survive an environment like that unless you are willing to be aggressive. And in another, it's easier to just kind of submit to raw emotion. And I'm seeing that now. It taught me a lot about myself, right? And it wasn't until I decided that I didn't want to be like everyone else around that I was able to kind of move away from that. Like, so, so first they sent you to county, and then you went to a federal prison? No, it wasn't federal. They ended up dropping the federal charges and keeping them all state because the 13 guns would have been federal. And then when they decided none of them were actually guns, and my bail went from like 750K down to like 25K. <laughs> like, it just took a while of sitting and getting transferred around. But jail, uh, to be honest, uh, the county jail I went to was worse than the first prison I went to, easily. It was Mercer County Community uh, no, Mercer County Correction Center. It's just the same MCCC as Mercer County Community College. So I always switch the two. So I've been to both MCCCs. So <laughs> that, that, that's, it, it's funny you bring that up because that's one reason like very early on with like the 9-11 conspirators, you had a lot of lawyers that were saying, don't send them to Gitmo, put them in a county jail. And then everyone was like, you put them in a county jail, these guys are going to get killed. Yep. hundred percent county jail. When you go into intake, it does, you'll be, it'll be a guy who got arrested with pot, a dude who just murdered his wife and a guy that got caught drunk driving and a dude that just got caught maybe raping someone. And you're all in one big room together. So when you get a 90 pound kid from Princeton who tried to buy some weed in Trenton and got locked up, he could be in there with six bloods who tried to shoot somebody and got caught with a gun in the car. And they there, there's, there's no separation. They just treat no. them all. No, it's uh, you walk in, you open the door and it's like bunk beds, triple, all the way back. You can fit 52 people in each little room. There's a big chain link fence and then 52 more people on the other side of the chain link fence. And these giant iron bar doors that lock in the front and then a second section that locks. There's like a day space that's double locked in. And you stay in that little room for as many years until you go to court. Some people stay, some people have been in that jail for upwards of five, six, seven years trying to not go to court to get back out. And I don't know why you would do that. When I found out I was actually going to prison, I was like, hot damn. Get me out of here. Oh Let me go. God. I want my hotel room. I don't want to do this shit. <laughs> what, what, what were some of the differences between what you thought prison was going to be like and what it ended up being? Because my only exposure to that was through like the show Prison Break. Right. I'd watched those before I'd gone. So I had a general, I, I had like the horror image of what it would look <laughs> like. And the first thing I noticed was in Oz, there was always like a, a bunch of white supremacists and then a bunch of black guys and a bunch of religious black guys and then like neutral folks and then like Italian gangsters. No. Oh, like the nation of Islam? Yeah. Like, well, I mean, well, to some degree, that's all that there is in there. There's just a lot of a lot of black gangsters, Spanish gangsters, some some white guys. They're very rarely you'll see a dude with like swastikas tattooed in his face. Like, I'd say like one in a hundred people. There's still a lot, but it's uh, it's muslims or christians who are very devout to their religion and then gangbangers that's like the two 
the two sides. There's like religious people that pay attention to themselves and their own little communities. And then there's people that gang up and then there's like little outliers that sprinkle in. What, where, where did you find yourself at that point? Because like, I, I could totally understand the one argument where it's like, I just need to be by myself and stay alone and not make eye contact or piss off anybody. And then there's the other part that's saying, I got to get with people. So that way I've got someone watching out for me. So I don't get shanked. Yeah, well, I mean, you just don't want to be by yourself because like canteen and stuff, if you eat food and other people don't have it and you're yourself and four people can take something from one person. That's, that's just basic physics. So, like, so like uh, you, you don't want to be by yourself in that regard. And, like, I didn't – thankfully, I didn't go in with some intense bigotry, so it wasn't difficult to get to Nopi. I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. I couldn't have – like, <laughs> what? I was the only one. So I wasn't, I wasn't immediately uncomfortable, and I knew how to basically navigate. And Trenton, Trenton's different because it's all bloods for the most part. There's hardly any Crips in Trenton to the point where the blood gets Crips are more – Crips are more like West Coast. That's more California. There's a lot of Hoover, and, and New Jersey has a lot of Crips, just not in Trenton. Like, but the blood gangs are killing each other for the most part. So mm-hmm. it was trying to navigate how not to get in the middle of that was the biggest problem. But for the most part, they keep them all locked down by units. So I went from like an all-sex money murder tier to an all-Piru tier to an all-like... And that's just how they keep them separated. And every once in a while, the cops to fuck with people will put somebody in there that doesn't belong there. And that's, that's like watching uh, piranhas go after a goldfish. <laughs> who, who, who was who was worse i mean the other inmates or the guards or was it pretty even well you see a lot of the guards will like engage in pimping out inmates in exchange for cigarettes and drugs and shit so when they beef up together that's when it's really bad because then you have inmates who if they do something for their guards whatever they're doing or, or i mean a lot of the time too guards are gangbangers from the street they grew up in the same area they just didn't get around and they went and applied to be a guard so like it's they're not good by any sense by any stretch. A lot of the females at Mercer County uh, Mercer County Corrections get in trouble for fucking inmates. That's an issue. Like uh, or like um, outside the street and then in inside as well. And like uh, it's just a whole big pen of nonsense. There was an issue not too long ago where they turned the camera in the medical ward and beat the fuck out of the dude in the bed. That was while I was in there when that happened. I thought there was going to be a riot. I actually thought there would be. And they just like locked us all down and then sprayed spray into the fans. So we were all choking. Holy shit. Because that way you can't see, you can't scream, you can't mob up, you know? Oh, my God. What was, was that like on the scale from this is the most insane thing that happened to this was just a regular occurrence? Like, how often did stuff like that happen? Oh, that, that caters towards the more extreme, I would say. Um, like, for the most part, everyday occurrences would be minor acts of violence. Like, at night, everybody, somebody got beat up like every night. It would always happen. There would be little rap spirals in the bathroom where people smoking weed and shit whenever their approved CO is on that doesn't care. And eventually there would be a B for a jumping or like a lot of things was over like inconsequential stuff from the street. Because a lot of the people that I was locked up with, you have to understand that in Trenton, when you go to jail, you know all your neighbors and you know your family members you haven't seen in a while. It's actually a communal experience, which is disturbing to see, but it's not a joke. So you go in and you have beefs you haven't settled in years. And then you're like, oh, that's what P is. And then like next thing you know, I've heard of that. I met a guy who um, I think he, yeah, he went to jail for 13 years. So I know, I know New Jersey and New York, they're mandatory minimum States. Uh, I think, I think New Jersey may have changed. I, I don't quite know. This isn't my thing, but I know this guy, he was, uh, he was 17 in, I think Jersey, Jersey city. Cause I know his mom worked at one of the casinos and he, um, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, doing drugs but he was selling drugs because he that's how he made a lot of money and he sold a 
he sold a couple joints to an undercover cop. And because of the drug laws in New Jersey, he basically got sentenced as an adult. And whereas some states now, it's like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try and work with you in New Jersey. And it was like in the late 90s, he got slapped to 13 years. And when he went to prison, like he saw his cousin, he saw a lot of people. And he, he said he felt like in some way, like a strange piece because at least he went where he knew people. And at least when he was there, he knew he was going to eat and he didn't have to go out for a job. So he said it was really weird in a, in a certain way. It was terrifying because it's still prison. But for him, it was just like I went from one shitty situation to another. I, I can actually tell you I totally understand that. There was a degree where at one point because of court, I got shipped around when I was still in county. And I had to go back through my county jail. Or no, I was in prison and had to go back to court for something else to like something meaningless. After, after it was all over, like it was a huge waste of time. But they had to stop and drop me in my county jail for a night and then bring me back to prison. And I remember, like, by the time I got into my county jail, I was like, oh, this is a familiar place. <laughs> like, like oh, I, feel, I feel like, okay, it's, it's the zoo, but, like, all right, like, it's, I recognize this place. Unfortunately, I'd been in over and over on the same charge. Like, I'd kept getting brought in, kept in for maybe a month, two months. I'd see the judge. They'd be like, oh, well, you have an address. You've been making your payments. Why are you locked up? They said you were somewhere else. I wasn't there. I mean, now I have no home. I haven't paid month, rent in two months. I don't know where my stuff is, but you want to let me out so I can get back to putting my life together? And it would repeat like that until eventually they were like, oh, well, we're tired of you fucking around. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's just the insane part of it because I just don't understand the argument. Like, yeah, I understand why we have a penal system. I understand why you need to do certain things, but this doesn't make sense. Like that was the first thing that you had done. The first, well, that was like the first crime there you were 18 it's like that's what they're going to do to somebody that just became an adult you're going to go ahead and put them somewhere where nothing's like their life is basically on hold but the years keep going by and then you let them out and you just expect them to kind of like you know go go into a normal everyday nine to five american life that just makes no sense i mean i'd love to use scapegoats and say that you know because of my experiences that's why i haven't been more professionally successful or whatever but honestly I, i think that it's not just scapegoating to say that right when I got locked up, like I'd been ROTC, I had plans for my life. And all of a sudden those plans had to be tossed and I didn't have a lot of stability. I was planning on like making my birth into the world by escaping my hometown, trying to go get out. Like, okay, I'll go in, I'll work for the government for a while. I'll go in, I'll be a, I'll just be a body somewhere. I'll collect the check. Maybe I'll get rank. Maybe I won't. Like, I'll see if I like that. And next thing you know, like I, okay, all my friends from high school now have jobs. A lot of them are in college. By the time I'm back out on the street, I don't even know people. My friend group's been cut down by 70%. Like, I'm embarrassed to talk to most people. Like, what am I supposed to do? Now I've got to go down to probation, so I've got to, like, incorporate going into Trenton all the time, which I didn't want to do. <laughs> like, nobody wants to go into Trenton if you can fucking avoid it. Especially, like, no. Especially around 2011, when they fi- that's when they just fired all the cops from Trenton Police Force. And there were gangbangers walking around at that date, April 3rd, when they were going to fire the cops. They had T-shirts that that date. Oh, my God, I remember that. They were right on TV play around the building. Remember that? All the yeah. Like what, they, what did the cops get fired for? Did they did they kill somebody? No, the cops got let go because of budget cuts. The oh, they had to let go of people that were desperately needed. And places like Cass Street, I mean, like Trent, New Jersey. If you made a top five list of the most dangerous cities in America, Trent, New Jersey is always like number six. But it's on there with Newark, Camden, and Trenton are always on that list. 
I, I, I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember Chris Christie because he was governor at the time. I remember he was bitching because he was like, well, you know, we don't have the money and I've got to work with the state legislature. But it's like you look at all the money that's going in. It's not that there was a lack of funding. It's just that all the funding that was going through the state legislature and the governor's office, no one ever calls out Christie for this. Christie was using the state of New Jersey like his own personal freaking playground. That's when they got mad about the bridge closer and the freaking beach incident. It's like that was nothing compared to what he was actually doing. It was like he and Obama spending thousands, tens of thousands on hot dogs. It was like it was it was so freaking ridiculous. He he he's one of those politicians where it's like I, I hate it when Republicans love him because they can never really justify why. They're just like, oh well, he says it like it is. He's like a Jersey guy. But it's like when you actually look at what he did, and the guy was a lawyer for the longest time, then he was a state representative. He's one of the biggest criminals out there. And he used the legal system and government to make himself insanely rich. It's dude, like, all right, I'm by no, by no means a Republican. And I've actually gotten into arguments with this with people because they're like, well, you support Trump. And I'm like, no, I'm a conservative if I had to pick one, but I didn't pick a political ideology until I'd already done a hard time and I had to find out who I was and what I believed. So when I look out and people go, oh, do you believe in like Warhawk Republicanism? I'm like, no, Dick Cheney was a human anus. Like, I'm not in the mood for any of this Halliburton bullshit. I don't think American blood should be over there on that ground. That doesn't make any goddamn sense. We have bombs that we can push buttons and activate. If that's immoral, don't push the button. Don't have the war. <laughs> like, what's the, what's the problem? It doesn't seem complicated, but then you realize that, A, the government is not a homogenous group. It's all different slices of the pie, each trying to get out for their own. And B, it's not as powerful as we'd like to pretend it is. And C, it's not correct or moral or just. It's a team. It's tribal. So, like, I'm watching the justice system function as just us, and I'm not on that team. So it's like watching... Fucked up shit happen all the time. Being told that what I'm seeing is like a oh I don't all right I'm I'm getting out of out of out of source. Yeah, to, to kind of yeah I mean to kind of narrow it in like one one of the reasons why I've had and I get into arguments with other libertarians about this. Uh, I, I I think the idea of private prisons is just absolutely screwed up because what you have to do in order to be a company is you have to have a constant, you know, demand from the public. So what, what, what's your demand at that point? What, what you're basically doing is you're basically saying, I will take care of your prisoners. Well, what happens when the, the rate of inmates starts to dwindle because people aren't committing crimes. What you have in like California, for example, California is like one of the most horrendous examples of this. What you have are people who represent these corporations that own these private prisons going and lobbying politicians to create new laws. Things that were not illegal yesterday are suddenly illegal today. So that way, what you're doing is you're expanding the net of people who are now criminals and you keep them coming in. And then what happens? Well, it's private. Therefore, it's going to be more efficient. No, it's not more efficient. They just throw a lot of shit under the rug because they're good at hiding stuff. What I find to be really <clears throat> frustrating in that situation is when I was going, when I was in those geo facilities, right? People were ODing in those geo facilities because the staff were bringing in drugs to these recovering addicts who signed into these programs because they wanted to do halfway back and they wanted to get home. Geo demands 90% occupancy from the state of New Jersey. So they're going to prison. They're taking people that aren't drug addicts. Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. So New Jersey expects that of GEO or GEO? No, GEO, when, when GEO signed its contract with the state of New Jersey saying that wow. we'll, we'll help you out, we'll say that you're doing your treatment programs, which you're supposed to do now by federal mandate. You have to have these drug treatment programs. We'll provide that for you. You give us 90% occupancy. Deal, deal. Oh, shit. So they go into jail and they say, hey, all you fentanyl dealers, tell me you used. You can go to this house. Those guys go to the house. They say, yo, I'm in this spot. Throw something over the fence real quick. I want to make a dollar. And people die and it keeps on going. 
I watched it happen. I watched people I ate breakfast with for months fucking die because they wanted to get high. They were depressed. They told everyone they were straight, but they weren't. It was right offered to them and they took it. Shit was laced with fentanyl. They're dead. Like, it sucks. He was my roommate. <laughs> like, what am I, what, what, and then there's no recourse. What am I going to do, snitch? I, I'm going to get stabbed to death in a rehab over that? Yeah, so like, too- like, like who do you go to? You can't go to anyone that works there. Thank you. Yeah, no, of course not. So what are you supposed to do? And, and then you have to realize that it's like the system at play, it's all money-based and people like to pretend that like inequality or lack of opportunity leads to crime, right? But it's, it's mentality and culture that lead to crime. Because if you live in a poor, like poor hardworking blue-collar areas, right? There are fistfights at the bar, right? Maybe somebody smacks their wife around, but there's a lot of flowers bought and there's a lot of fucking church on Sunday and there's a lot of barbecues and there's a lot of condemnation when Phil slap, slaps, you know, Wendy around. Like there's legitimate, there's, there's growth and the sons are usually traditionally better than their fathers. And that's the way that those communities develop. And the daughters become wiser from watching failed marriages and pick better husbands. And, then it, and the whole thing builds on itself. Well, instead you take a community and I take all the fathers out for 15 years and I let them out later. Think about what that does psychologically. Now they're back on the street trying to make the same illegal money their, their other kids were, fucking around with kids a quarter of their age. They don't understand each other. How do you build a community out of this? It's like why the incest rate is so high in places like Trenton. People don't know who their own family members are. They don't know. They legitimately don't know. That is literally something that I never thought was a problem. And now I feel so much worse for knowing that. I'm sorry. LA is just as bad, man. And you uh, look quick. at it, I mean, a lot of the problems, they say that those are like immigrant community problems, but it's like, no, they, again, you're trying to chop down something else. The problem is this whole circle and the people who operate in the circle, they can't get a solid pattern going ever. So you got to break down the walls and you got to say, okay, what politicians are penning them in? What private corporations are making sure they've got a constant feeder tank? And, and when you follow the money, that's when you start getting called, you know, all sorts of names. And <laughs> when you start condemning globalist chains of suffering, you get called all sorts of shit. And it's like, yeah, because whether you realize it or not, like you might be grassroots working for this, this rehab company, Geo, and you might think, I want to help people. I really do. You don't realize it, but you are so much a part of the problem. You go to I, work trying to help, like you're not helping. I, I totally understand it now. And I, I, I used to argue this before because I just didn't know. I was ignorant about a lot of things. I just went with a lot of t- token talking points. But like when, when I go into DC and I meet people, like nine times out of 10, your Uber driver is either going to be an immigrant who's here undocumented or it's somebody who's grown up their entire lives in DC and they've at least done a few years in the clink. I mean, most of the time that's it. You rarely find somebody that's, you know, going to school or working a full-time job and they're just Ubering just for the hell of it. Those are usually the people that you're going to find like 90% of the time. And what's crazy is I, you know, I, I love talking to Uber drivers. I think I learn more from Uber drivers than I have from my own college professors, but I, I met this one guy and he kept referring, like he, he had, he, he was, uh, he like, like the dude, I think, oh, this was around the time that I met the guy that was like uh, 17 and did like 13 years for selling a couple joints. This guy had a very similar situation. He was, uh, he was selling like Coke or something in the eighties and he got hit with it then when, you know, it was Reagan's just say no era. And he, he was, he spent, he spent a long ass time in prison, but I remember he kept referring to as like the new plantation. And it's really like, I used to just think, oh, that's, you know, that's just black people saying, oh, it's full of black people and it's black people in, in chains, all this other stuff. So of course they're going to try and make it seem so much worse, but maybe if you just didn't do the crime, it wouldn't be there. No, like there's a lot of targeting 
of like black and Latino communities. That's why when you look at the overall breakdown of who's going to prison, you have a majority of them are black. A majority of them aren't even Mexicans. Like Mexicans don't, as a, you know, if you're a Mexican in America, your odds of committing a crime are actually remarkably low. It's a lot of Central Americans. You're Ecuadorians, you're El Salvadorians, like you're Guatemalans. Like it's those, it's the Central, the, the OTMs, the other than Mexicans. And it's like, you see what they're doing. You see how they treat these people. Then what's sick is when these private prisons and even some, even some public prisons, like they start farming them out to do different jobs, like paving roads and fixing buildings and stuff. And it's like, wait a second, these people aren't getting paid. And of course you're always going to win because you're going to have the cheaper bid compared to an actual contractor. So not only are you using essentially slave labor, but you're also usurping the market where people actually have to compete for things and they can't compete for you. It's yeah, three ridiculous. Great, three great points on that. Are, you got Whole Foods employing prison labor. Whole Foods employing no, prison labor. No oh, freaking way. No. So, so, yeah, oh yeah, that's why Kamala Harris insisted that people stay locked up longer than they had to. Free labor for com- corporations, dude. Corporations own the world. Globalism is a bitch. Right? That's thing <laughs> one. Whole thing Foods? Two. Whole Foods, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, don't tell Karen though. <laughs> <laughs> thing two, right? I, I was on the side. I, I enjoyed work detail in prison because it was an opportunity to be outside. I was I was on the side of the highway wearing those stupid vests. I was hauling mattresses out of the woods and shit. Oh, going cool back Luke. Like, when I was actually in prison and I got to work, it was great. County jail, like I got to work at the law library for a little while, which was great for me because at the time, like I had worked as a paralegal for my dad in his law firm before I got locked up, and I was he does matrimonial law, but the whole concept of like actually being able to put together a certification in defense of a woman who's getting, been getting abused and find out later that she got her kids and he's got to pay her a bunch of money and he's going to jail. Like it felt good. Like being able to be a part of like legitimate justice within the system. He, and like my dad was always doing shit pro bono and everything. It was a good environment. So when I was working law library, I would help people with their cases as much as I could. It was supposed to be technically my job. Right. So I'm, I got a dude off for, he'd been, he'd been hit with assault, theft, battery, robbery, and something else. And even in his own casework, he couldn't read, by the way. He was illiterate. He wrote, he drew, when he was signing his, his signature, he gripped his pencil like this. And uh, how, how do you expect an illiterate person to defend themselves? Dude, basically what he'd done is walked in, taken a pair of socks. Did he have a lawyer? Did he have a he lawyer? Had a public, he had a public defender, but the oh, public, public defenders, defenders don't care. They all want to be prosecutors. They want their, they want their rate to be up. So public they're working the across the country. Yeah, I mean, public defenders, and this is coming from someone that I, I wanted to go to law school before I realized I hated school. But like, you know, the thing I've learned about public defenders is that their job really is not to provide you the best, you know, representation they can. It's to just maybe make the sentence suck less. Yep. Like, That's all it is. For the most part, public defenders, they've got already gotten a job getting their paycheck from the state. So they eventually want to be on the other table, getting a paycheck from the state. And then they want to keep going further and they might want to run a district. They might want to like, so when you look at it, of course, like police corruption, for example, doesn't make any sense that internal affairs gets their paycheck from the same place that the cops who are being accused of the crime get their paycheck. And so do the lawyers defending both sides. So what am I watching other than theater? I mean, it's beautiful theater, but it's theater. And there's not going to be any real, there's not, you're not going to get any aquitas out of that. (laughs) <laughs> like oh my uh, god so either way but uh, i don't know i, I actually kind of i rather enjoyed for the most part working in prison on highway detail because it was an opportunity to get out but it was still an absolute shit job i was fucking terrible we were picking up needles we weren't you know we were given gloves that were like lawn working gloves and we were expected to clean up like because truckers every gross thing a trucker throws out his window they expected us to clean up on the side of the road 
for hours every day. And it was like, people would come by and offer to buy us food and shit when it was hot or cold. And the CEOs are always like, nah. But one time he took 50 bucks from the guy and just kept it. I remember that. I was like, yeah, these people, man. Oh my uh, God. So, so, re- so rewinding just a minute. What, uh, you, you're talking about that guy and he, he walked in the court with like just socks on or something? Oh, no, no, no. He, he walked into a Target and he grabbed a pack of socks and oh. he was going to walk out and the security guard stopped him and saw him, right? So he took the, po- took the socks out of his jacket, held them above his head, put them down, went to leave. The security guard tackled him. So he beat the shit out of the security guard because the dude was built. He was a bricklayer. And it's like, okay, this is not robbery. This is not assault. This is not theft. This is not burglary. This is attempted shoplifting. He didn't leave the store with anything. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't I, 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 I think I'm going to push back on that one. Like he was, he was going to steal the socks. His problem was he just got caught. No, he turned, he saw the security guard. The security guard looked at him. So he just took the socks out of his jacket and put them down. He never moved toward the door. He didn't do none but, of that. But, but the intent was there. Like he was, he was going to steal the socks you, though. You could argue that the intent for attempted shoplifting is there. But okay. do, you want to, do you want to prosecute attempted shoplifting? Is that even something you'd bother with? He put the socks down and left the store. I never saw him again that day. Why'd you call the cops? I have something else I could do. <laughs> like, oh, I, that, I, 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 I was a mall cop um, for about, God, I hated that job. That was, oh, uh, my, my first day of being a mall cop. And let, let me set the stage. I was, uh, the it was like one of those white collar outdoor shopping outlets where you look everywhere. And if you're like me, the only thought going through your mind is I will never afford to shop here. I'm just happy <laughs> I can work here. I remember my first day. One, I, I realized I was the only actual American citizen working my shift. Everyone else was, they were from, uh, they were from Senegal or they were South African uh, and then you have a few from like the Ivory Coast. So they're all like the, the French speaking Africans who immigrated yeah. here. And I remember on my first day, literally, I had this guy, um, I forget his name, but he, he barely spoke English. He was a mall cop by day and he worked at Dulles Airport by night as a, as a luggage carrier. I just remember he's screaming over the radio and he tells us, get to the back of the building, get to the back of the building. And some kids who bought, uh, bought a couple cigars illegally from someone, though we think the guy that owned the cigar shop was just selling it to them for the hell of it. Um, they, they threw some lit cigars into the dumpster and they actually said dumpster on fire. I had never seen a dumpster on fire in my real life and let me let me tell you what this is like folks it's like schindler's list this is like you know that scene in schindler's list where the wife is like oh it's snowing and then you look up and you see the stuff coming from the smokestacks and you're like that's not snow that was kind of like how it was it was like black snow coming that smelled like shit i'm looking at that i'm like wow this is a very detailed uh, metaphor for my life right now but what what we used to do, we caught a lot of shoplifters. And the weird thing about it was they were always, and, and I mean, the way I loved about that job was it broke stereotypes. It was always these women that lived at the apartment complexes across the street whose husbands had actual jobs. So they were just paid to go work out and shop with and drink with their friends. It was always these these very upper class women that would go like Victoria's Secret and they'd start like stuffing their bras with shit. And what we had to do was even if you were caught for attempted shoplifting, we called the cops because that was the only way we could provide an example enough to get people to stop stealing. Because right. then what that causes, like stores, anyone that works retail know that you have to take account, like a certain amount of your inventory is going to get stolen. I worked at, uh, I worked at GameStop after that, where we, you know, you, you can't go to GameStop and open a case and see a game there. You have to go there, buy it, and then they put the disc in the case. But like all the plastic shit on the walls, all the keychains and stuff, like, you know, like 10%, like 5% of that's going to get stolen. 
So like if we could stop people from doing that, we thought that we were helping the business owners in that chance. Yeah, reasonably. I mean, the logic is there. I see where you're going with it. Yeah, so like I, I, would, I would take the guard. Now, where I think, the, I think the guard is wrong is he puts himself in a very bad legal situation because what we were always told to do is don't ever touch anyone. Even if they're about to harm you, don't touch anyone. Your job is observe and report. You're not a cop. Let the cops deal with them. So like I never like we dealt with some violent people. I never I never had to lay hands on anybody, but we had um you know we had people that would hit us. Um, I, I saw so many people, especially drunk white women. Drunk white women are the best because they get violent so fast. You don't even have to like like do anything serious. They will they will fucking punch you like it is the end of the world. But. I, I mean, I just remember we had several people that just kept coming back and stealing stuff. They were like trying to do it for a thrill. But I mean, I just remember what they told us at one point. They're like, if you attack anybody else, even if it's self-defense, the company and I worked for a security contractor called Maxent. Maxent will not protect you. And neither will Boston Properties, who owns the shopping place. So basically, the moment you touch anybody else, they are like, well, you voided all your protection and insurance. Like we're not even going to do it. So if I were, if I saw that, the last thing I would do was tackle the person. At that point, he's already on camera. You have witnesses. The cops will find him eventually. So I think that was his mistake. He put himself in a position where it's like, especially since the guy was, from what you told me, he wasn't harming anybody. He was just going to walk out. I would have let him walk out. I will still call the cops, but I wouldn't have let, I would have just let him walk out at that point. It's not worth getting into a worse situation because of that. His name is Reginald something, and his lawyer's last name is uh, Redpath Perez, but I, I don't remember her first name. Oh, my cousin. Lawyer, <laughs> his lawyer was absolutely incompetent, and she was about to let this man do years for getting attacked, a 60-year-old crackhead getting beaten by some 20-year-old security officer. Did, did, he, have, did he have a record prior yeah, to that? Um, yeah, he had a record. He had a record for all sorts of shit. He was, he was an old crackhead. That was his whole yeah. life. He never really lived anywhere for more than a few months. He just worked. He went to jail in the wintertime probably like every winter for all I know because I'd seen him in there multiple times. But the point was, this one time, I was looking over the paperwork, and it wasn't a case of clearly, I didn't do nothing. And it's like, suspect was found with four nine millimeter handguns, two pounds of cocaine. It's like, hey, you didn't do nothing, but yeah, I'll try to help you out here. But no, this was actually a case where it was like... Do, he, do you think he wanted to go back? Uh, I don't... Maybe. Maybe he wanted to go back in, and this was just more than he bargained for. Maybe I hurt him by getting him released, but... <laughs> Did way. you see him come back after that? Oh, yeah. I saw, that, I saw him... <laughs> the re- only reason I know that he really got out because of me... <laughs> Because a little while later, I saw him back in. He was like, oh, it's the lawyer man. And I was like, oh, oh my God. Socks this time? To some degree, it's, there's, there's humor. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of gallows humor when you're locked up. It's, uh, it was strange because like, when I got out, I, I read a lot of the Bhavad Gita when I was in. I started doing a lot of yoga. Because I, I got access to it from the library, and it was a good thick book, and it was very dense passages. So That's that, uh, Indi- that's that Hindu meditation book. Yeah, it's, well, it's a Hindu holy text, basically. Okay. Um, it's the entire story of Krishna and Arjun, where the eve before Arjun has to go to battle against his own family, because Arjun's father... Uh, I, I know absolutely shit about that. It's fine. This is the, the one, Arjun's dad was king, and then his dad got sick, and they left, and his brother took over, the uncle. And then when the uncle died, the uncle's sons were like, all right, we're princes, we're up. And Arjun is like, no, no, no. So uh, Arjun goes to battle with this guy who was going to be his chariot driver, and Arjun was an archer. And his chariot rider in the middle of the night starts talking about the morality of his decision. And in the morning, it turns out that the chariot rider is God. It's Krishna. And he opens his mouth and reveals the universe. It's very fucking intense. But uh, reading that kind of gave me a, 
a perspective of life that was, I mean, I'm sure it was the yoga too, but I didn't want to be everything that I had been. And I started to identify that it was all patterns. And I got into Jordan Peterson not long after this, but. Oh, once you go down that rabbit hole, that's a whole other thing. I I pulled out of it not not too long after getting into it. It's because I started to feel hinky. But a lot of the main points he was making towards motivation were entirely accurate. You know, you got to, you have to drive yourself towards what you want to be. And I wasn't doing anything I wanted to be. I was trying to stop myself from feeling sick and feeling sad and feeling depressed all the time. That's all that, that's, that's the incredible thing about Jordan Peterson. And I, I'm not going to say that I don't understand why he has such a cult following, but it, it really made, it was really kind of a weird reflection of myself as I was watching kind of his rise, especially if a lot of young men around our age, because it made me really realize, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed. I had both my parents in my life. I had, a father who's a career soldier. So like a lot of the things that I just thought were normal and I just thought were just common sense things for a lot of young men who maybe didn't have that, or they came from an unhealthy family or something. When he says basic shit, like clean your room, brush your teeth and sit up straight and have a purpose. I hear that. And I just think that's what you have to do. They hear that and they're hearing something that changes their lives yeah. And I had to look at myself and compare a little bit to the people that are really benefiting from it. And I realized, oh shit, there are a lot of people that don't live with that. Yeah. Like structure is, structure is incredibly important. And to some degree, that was one thing that prison helped me with. I think going to prison was one of the best things that could have happened to me because if I hadn't gone, I would have run around doing the same fucked up shit nonstop. And I would never have had to actually look at myself and be like, do I want to come back here? Do I want to try to find a way to live in the margins and do whatever the fuck I want and ignore the rules and pretend, you know, it's just go skate or die? Like, no, that's not, that's not accurate. You don't want to live that way. Because for the most part, what you're going to do is eventually turn around and look at your life and be incredibly disappointed. And it's like, I was getting more and more of that as I'm watching these people that I saw as nothing but examples of what I would become if I didn't stop. And it was like, I wish that it had been something as simple as just a, just like a, a direct drug addiction to just remove. I mean, I dabbled and I'd had problems, but they, those were all side effects of my lifestyle. It wasn't one specific substance I got to cut out that would have fucking fixed me. It wasn't like I could just stop punching people and I'd get my shit together. It, it, it was it was interior. It wasn't exterior. In 100%. And it wasn't until I was in an environment where everything I wanted and enjoyed about life was stripped away from me. And I had to focus on only what I could physically do and what I could ignore and focus on. And switching my directions from fighting against to fighting for, like absolutely saved my life. But between when you started that transition of really trying to heal yourself internally, how much time was between that and when you finally got released? I'd say about a solid year and a half. It started in solitary. I, I didn't, my, I mean, my eyes are still messed up from it. I am um, using my little phone doesn't help, but my vision got really messed up because I did solitary for 120 days and the lights are real bad in there. So it was like, I remember notably after getting out of that environment, when I was in regular fluorescent lighting, like it hurt my eyes and I didn't see the sun again for months after that until I got transferred to a different facility. It was like, it just really it fucks with your head. And it's like when you realize that it's not going to be determined on your behavior, like living in an environment like that, where how you're treated is not determined by your behavior. It's merely determined by your existence. So it's like the fact that you're near in close proximity is enough to receive punishment in one sort or another. There's no balance to it or logic. So for I, the most part, just try to be polite, but uh, I don't know. It's like, yeah, yeah go uh, ahead. Uh, so I used to get shit a lot for it because I always smiled. I always smiled, said thank you, said God bless, made eye contact. Because after a while, after 
I moved like my fifth or sixth fight and brutal lockdown over bullshit. I was like, there's no point in pretending that I'm going to waver. I'm just going to be consistently myself, 100%, look them in the eye, and just, if you have a problem with it, we can settle the problem. But how you doing? You know, <laughs> why don't you brush your teeth, but <laughs> just say whatever you want. Just, just fucking tell them. And, uh, and for the most part, the directness is something that a lot of people who get locked up don't experience. We're saying, you're saying that a lot of kids didn't get the Jordan Peterson approaches when they were kids. And it's mind-blowing to think that just saying, you matter, can make someone feel good because a lot, a lot of people have already heard that, but a lot more people haven't. Well, like a lot of people I was locked up with, they, they had no, no real concept to expect anything else from the world. Like, yeah. And, and I mean, to kind of split it into, into two things, one of solitary confinement, I, I didn't understand that that was torture until I actually started to see a lot of reports. I, I've got, I've got a couple of friends that are really into like criminal justice policy. Uh, John Odermatt over at Lines of Liberty, he does a Friday show called Felony Fridays. And he's told, he's talked about some horrendous stories, about what happens in solitary. And I've got uh, Hannah Cox for conservatives concerned against the death penalty. She actually does a lot of, you know, anti-solitary time and stuff too i mean that's just insane but like on on the other end of it you know the the one thing that a lot of the left attacked jordan peterson with was they're like notice how you have a large amount of white males who who like you and follow you and that's kind of alt-righty and stuff and it was like you know i i don't living living in the south like the deep south was one of the best things for me because i actually did not think that white poverty existed I really did not like I heard of it, but I did not actually believe it until I saw it. And there are a lot of people in the country that I really think, think that white poverty is a myth. And then when you look at the numbers, like, like, like white couples in America are more likely to divorce now than any other race. I think that's kind of scary in terms of like, you know, it's like seven out of 10 black men in America born like after the, after 85 or something are less likely to have ever met their biological father. Like we're starting to see a large majority of like the white population where it's like a large majority of, you know, white men and women will never know who their biological father is. And it's like, well, when you look at that, you should be thinking, okay, why is this happening and why are they healing? We should see it as a good thing. But what I, what I hate about the left is they look at that. And folks, remember, like I'm a Puerto Rican Korean guy. Like the FAFSA loved me in college, but like you, you look at that and it's just like you're trying to dismiss it. Like that's a big segment of the country. And when you see people trying to get better, you should be happy that they're trying to get better. You see, it, it's always bothered me. You know, I, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And I think, to, to be honest, and I, this isn't even tinfoil hat. It's just exhaustive that bringing it up, there, there's always, I get anxious before I do, but it's just, it's a fact. Uh, anything that is beneficial towards straight white men is going to be condemned by the open media because we are a hated class. And people like to pretend that white supremacy exists, but it doesn't. Black supremacy exists. The idea that you can be darker than me and get a job that I'm qualified for and you're not, that is an act of supremacy. That's an act of privilege. I, this, yeah. My opinion is somehow invalid because of immutable traits. And that's what's being repeated over and over. You see it in video games, you see it in music, movies. You see, you see it in television, uh, comic books especially. Oh, don't get me fucking started with comic books right now. Oh, my God. Ass. 
Okay. I, I don't re- I don't read Marvel anymore. I'm done with Marvel comics. But like I I've, I I had to go to like one of the poorest parts of the country to really see that. And like you know people have, people have accused me of being a lot of things. The one thing I'm not is somebody that doesn't understand that there are a lot of you know more liberal arguments about racial inequality in America that actually do have some substance to it. Because depending on where I've lived and I've lived everywhere in the country, I have either been a latino hispanic male or i've been a white protestant male like depending on where i live i've been treated completely different like when i lived in texas i was treated like uh i I was the son of a day laborer so i was put in rooms and situations where they were surveying students where they only spoke spanish and they put me there because i had a spanish name and I moved to Northern Virginia, and because we have a very diverse population, I was treated with all the entitlements of a straight white male, you know, a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It's like it's so weird because there have been times where I know for a fact I have been the minority hire. I have been the minority hire. And then I've been in other situations where I lost a job because I wasn't qualified to be a minority hire. So it's been so weird because, like, for people like me – we represent a very growing portion of the United States, which is very racially and culturally and ethnically ambiguous. Yep. And it has to, I think it's been a blessing for me because I've been able to see this kind of on both sides. And it's like why you see a large majority of, you know, white men in prison, they will, they don't recover afterwards. They really don't recover because the stereotype for a lot of, you know, white male felons is, Oh, you must've killed somebody. Oh, you must have robbed a bank or something. Uh, What's a little worse than that, a lot of the reason white male felons don't recover is if a group of four white guys hangs out in prison, it's a security threat group charge. If a group of 12 black guys hangs out and plays basketball, it's absolutely no fucking problem. And I experienced that. I have an SDG charge for no reason. None of my tattoos are gang affiliate. I'm not a supremacist or an Aryan. I (laughs) I don't bang. But I have an SDG charge. Well, you're friends with me, so I'm pretty sure you're not a racist. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's about the quality of person. And to be honest, most people fucking suck. You don't, which is great. But, I mean, I've met white people that fucking suck. I wouldn't piss on if they were on fire. It's not about the color. Oh, the the worst people I've ever met, like the most, like, people I refuse to stand with are white women from Georgetown. White liberal women from Georgetown are the worst people. It's just, I mean, like, at the same time, I've met, I've met, in being locked up, I've come close to the fruits of Islam folks, and I've met a lot of these people who view, like, the entire white race as something that they think we came from the Caucasus Mountains, and that, like, uh, we were created by evil warlocks. There's there's a subgroup called the Five Percenters. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I've heard of them. I'm like, you know, inside, like, like, uh, what was it, Locked Up? One of those shows? I'll tell you, it's from when I was locked up. I don't watch that shit. I can't. (laughs) But I'm blind, man. a lot of what I've, I've been, I've been lectured to about it. And it's like, well, it's very uncomfortable, but I can't honestly imagine that I would be uncomfortable. I would be comfortable in the inverse situation. I don't think I'd sit there with a group of 12 white guys and watch them ridicule some one lone black guy for the color of his skin for fucking three hours waiting for him to do something. Like that's not an activity I would join in on. So when people mm-hmm. talk to me about how like I need to watch my white privilege, I'm like, you don't understand what it's like when I'm the minority. You don't understand what the mentality is like. I do. I've been around it for years. Like the mentality shifts because there's a, a cultural norm, a cultural norm being pushed right now that shitting on white people is acceptable. And that means that you're going to get an inverse reaction and it's going to be horrific. 
And I'm seeing it a lot with white guys that get out of prison. They don't forget what that feeling is like. And then they come home and they turn on TV, they turn on the movies, they turn on the reopen the comic books, they do the video games, and they're seeing a push and they were just weaponized because it's very easy to weaponize people into hate. It's easy to radicalize people into hate. Hate's like a response reaction. You know, you, you tell someone that they're threatened and they start to get angry. The anger is always more useful than despair. So you take people at their lowest and you weaponize them against, you finally give them an enemy responsible for all their woes. What could you ask for more than that? Unfortunately, it's yeah. not an accurate depiction of the world. And yeah, and I, I, yeah. I don't know. It's just- yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, me coming from a Christian worldview, I mean, I... I mean, we're all on the same stage in the fact that we're all inherent. I, I believe that we're all inherently flawed. We are born flawed. We live flawed. We will die flawed. Because when you look at the book of Genesis alone, what happens? Man's first decisive action is to commit sin. And then what happens, not even like a decade later, murder occurs. Like, you know, we, we give each other so many areas to be hateful. It's almost a revolutionary act to say, I'm not going to be part of that. And it's really frustrating because, I mean, I'm, I do Instagram. It's the only thing I use now. And I follow a lot of pages and people are edgy on there. I see a lot of edgy people, edgy kids. And I'm like, well, I try to approach the cop conversation from, do you understand the uniform and the man aren't the same thing? And if you want to reach the man, you can't talk to the uniform. <laughs> like, you get that? And the response that I get is always like, what are you saying, bro? 1776. But I'm just like, all right. Man. Now, in Virginia, I hate it when you get these guys that have like the thin blue line flag on one side of their car and then you have the Gadsden flag in another. It's like, ah, that's a little bit contradictory, but, um, you know, t- Tim, we're, we're getting close on time. Um, uh, I'm, I'm curious when you finally left prison and you finally paid all your debts like that and you knew like, wow, I'm, I'm finally at a point in my life where they're not going to come grab me. What, what was that feeling like? Uh, it, well, I've got PTSD and apparently it's compounding PTSD because I'd had it from stuff that happened when I was a kid and I've been in therapy for it. And then when I got out of prison, I went back to another therapist. She's looking at my old file and my new one doing the tests and stuff. And, uh, I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't get over it. I didn't feel good for a while. It took me about a year to get normal. And thankfully Kim was there for it. I mean, she's the, the light, the light of my life to say the least. Uh, I talked to her my whole last year locked up, um, at least six solid months of talking every single day. I wrote her countless letters and when I got out, like she really helped me get become less afraid because that's my, my biggest problem when I came out. Is I was I was afraid to leave the house. I was afraid to go to the grocery store, and I couldn't even explain why. There was no, I just felt more comfortable sitting in the bathroom, not going to the toilet, just sitting in the bathroom. I felt more comfortable with the door closed in the room and the windows shut. And that was an agoraphobic reaction to having my world consist of a six by six box. So it's like, or an eight by nine, I guess, but. Either way, it, when I was final, when I finally got used to it, it didn't really. I can't say that I, that I have it's ever gone completely away because I'm still. I'm more afraid now of losing my freedom again than I ever was before I lost it the first time because it didn't mean anything. The idea of going to prison, like I can understand when people say go to the rallies, you know, come out and, and open carry, and it's like I really want to be a part of supporting that community. It's really easy to have people do that when they've never experienced what that loss is themselves. And and that's something that's always bothered me because like I have been, I have had situations where, and I don't like talking about it because some people listen to it and it's like, Oh, it's Remso trying to jump on like the Latino identity politics card. It's like, no, like I have been, I, I, I have been profiled because of my name. And it hasn't even always been in, in negative situations. Like, you know, I, ha- I have phase like after college where like I, I got pulled over quite a bit for speeding and stuff. And I never argued it. I was speeding. Yeah. 
okay, I got caught. I had to pay for that. But like, I've, I've experienced it where people will talk to me and then they'll actually meet me. Then they'll hear my name. And the one comment I re- that, you know, I've grown to laugh at is when they're like, oh my gosh, you speak English so well. How long did it take you to learn it? And then my response is like, well, thank you. It's the only language I learn. I mean, I am, I am the whitest Latino person that most people will ever meet. And it's like, for me, it's like, I, I understand why a lot of Hispanic immigrants and why a lot, of, a lot of people in like the Latino community, they will say that, you know, like Latino lives are cheap. Like, you know, for years it was like all lives matter and black lives matter and all of that. Like no one ever talks about that. So when you see a bunch of, you know, Hispanics or Latinos get rounded up by the cops, you just automatically think, oh, well, they must all be illegal. They must all be criminals. It's like there, there's so much to all of these stories. And what I hate is collectivism of any kind. And I'm not just talking collectivism in terms of government or economics. The, the collective group think that comes from anything that's poisonous and that's evil and when you look at the actual individual stories of people there's so much more nuance to it that we lose on when we just refuse to look at them as people like no i I definitely hear what you're talking about there's a dehumanizing aspect to to a lot of how people interact where you want to see an idea or you want to you're wearing your ideological sunglasses and you you want to see the world in a way that fits in perfect little tetris blocks and Mm. It's great. One of my favorite experiences when you get to have when you get to pull the glasses off of somebody for just mm-hmm. a second, and then you watch them their equanimity shake and they question every decision they've ever made. And it's like, yeah, dude, congratulations. The world is ever evolving, and you're not done now. If the me I was now met the me I was a year ago, and it just keeps going, like you, you can think that for the rest of your life. If the me I'm going to be in five years met the me I am now, I would probably yell at myself about all sorts of shit. So, oh, high, high school Remso is completely terrified by you know, 25 year old Rem. So if I met my 18 year old self, I would think that I've made nothing but poor decisions in my life. I mean, dude, I, if I met my 18 year old self, it would be like I was looking on the opposite line. I met one of these Patriot Prayer Antifa rallies. I was a Mohawk wearing, vest wearing, fucking burn it all down, fuck the government. <laughs> I didn't understand homogeny. I didn't understand the dichotomy. I didn't know nothing about nothing. I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want to know either. I just wanted to vent. And a lot of people, unfortunately, I see it. I see that they, that's just all they're feeling. So we get collective and we say, like, yeah, every Antifa, smash them up. It's like there's somebody out there who could be on your side in just two short months if you were to just bother talking to them. But you can't. I don't blame you because you see the uniform and not the person, paint with a broad brush. Well, it's easy. It's easy. I've told people forever, you can get a very right-wing Confederate flag-wearing redneck who loves guns, and you can get the most militant Black Lives Matter person in a room together. They have way more in common than you think. And then once they really start to think, wait a second, he's not my enemy. Who's the enemy? Then they start looking at the media and the, the, you know, everyone else. And they're like, holy shit, we've been pitted against each other and we shouldn't. Like it's, 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 I've experienced that exact same, that exact realization in real time. I have, I have broken breads with black lives matter activists and the radical right on some things. And it's like, you know, they're, they, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, to some degree, and this no being able to really talk to people about these concepts is a very useful skill. It saved my ass when I was locked up. I'll tell you that. Cause I've had this conversation with people. Like, do you realize that we're not supposed to talk? Like being able to say this to like a five-star general in Sex, Money, Murder was a really fascinating conversation. Being able to be like, you know, like you and I are never supposed to be able to share each other's ideological perspectives on anything. Like we're not supposed to. If the media found out, if they found out, they would be mad because we're not supposed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
And uh, to be honest, I met some friends that I could never invite to a family reunion. And, and I don't have their numbers now and don't want them. But I knew some, some people when I was locked up that are terrible people. But we clicked because we were able to have a moment where it was like, okay, outside of this, we would never be anywhere near each other. But right now, we're not against each other. It's, it's, it can't be orange versus orange. <laughs> like, oh, my God. That's, that's hilarious. Like, I, I, I think it's more the fact that when I became a journalist, I found that I had to talk to people. Like, I can naturally get along with really anybody. Like, I've met some real, like, you know, hate-filled, raging liberals who I, will, I, will, I would hang out with, like, casually. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I, I, this has been a great conversation. I hope my listeners enjoy it. If anyone wants to follow you on Instagram, what's your handle? Oh, it's at Tim Talks number six. So Tim Toxics. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Tim, thank you so much for your time, man. Appreciate everything. I appreciate it. It was great, man. Have a good one. All right. You too, man. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.